and welcome to The Literacy Teacher's Life, a podcast for teachers and parents that gives ideas about how to help our children learn to love reading, writing, and all things literacy. I'm your host, Elizabeth Morphus, a literacy professor and a mom to two elementary-aged girls. Here we'll talk about thoughtful, creative, and realistic ways to navigate literacy learning so that your children will feel supported and seen in their reading and writing. Now, let's get this conversation started. Hello, and welcome to the Literacy Teachers Life podcast, the podcast for teachers and parents who are helping young readers and writers thrive. I'm your host, Elizabeth Morphus. This is episode five, which is airing in mid-December, and today I have a special guest. Julia Lindsay, she is the author of the book, Reading Above the Fray, Reliable Research-Based Routines for Developing Decoding Skills. And we're going to talk about her book and also some of the ideas in her book about how to support young readers with decoding and phonics. But before we get into the interview, I have a topic on the literacy list, and that is shared reading. So shared reading is a teaching practice that I'm going to discuss a bit more with today's guest, Julia Lindsay. But before I do, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what this is. So shared reading is a teaching practice. And in the classroom, it is when the teacher reads a text. It can be a big book or it can be a text that is enlarged on the smart board with the students. So since the children will be reading the text, it should be something that is around their reading level. So in the interview, Julia talks about appropriate text to use with young children that are in preschool or early in the kindergarten year. So you want to make sure that it's something that they can read because they'll be doing the reading with you. You don't want to use a text that is too difficult for where they are in terms of reading. So the children and the teacher are reading the text together. The children are sitting up close so that they can see the text as they read along. Shared reading was actually developed so that children in school could have the experience of lap reading or reading, hearing, and discussing stories with adults in a comfortable setting. I like to think of shared reading as similar to attending a rock concert. So stay with me on this one. If you've ever been to a concert and the artist sings a bit and then invites the audience to sing along with her, so that way the audience and the artist are singing together. The audience has the support of the artist. So it's similar for shared reading. The teacher can read for a bit, then invite the students to read with her, and the students have high support from the teacher and from their peers as they're reading. So this is a practice to consider trying out more in your classroom or at home with your children. You can read different texts in a shared reading format. As you're reading, you can point out different phonics patterns or high-frequency words that the students are learning. You can also point out different letters. So you can point out capital letters, lowercase letters, and also different punctuation. I'm highlighting this teaching practice because shared reading can help get kids to read who might be more reluctant. So for parents, this is something you might want to try over the holiday break. You can start reading to your child and then invite your child to read along with you. And then after your reading, you can talk about what you liked about the book and why. It doesn't have to be something big. And we'll dive more into this in the interview. So 
Now that we've discussed this teaching practice a little bit, I want to transition into the interview with Julia. Welcome, Julia, to the podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Thanks so much for coming on. Can you start by introducing yourself and telling everyone a little bit about about who you are? Sure, I'd love to. Uh, My name is Dr. Julia Lindsay. I am a foundational literacy expert, um, and I started my career as a classroom teacher. I taught kindergarten and first grade, actually up in New York, and had a wonderful time teaching and had just, I just adored every moment of working with my students. And I did, though, have an ambition to go and get a PhD, and I really loved reading and writing, so I thought about literacy. In addition to that, I did have some questions about literacy teaching from my time as a teacher. So I taught in a school where we had really strong and effective phonics instruction. It was explicit and systematic across wow. you know, many years of schooling, but we also used a lot of other um, aspects of literacy instruction that weren't as systematic or as explicit. So for mm-hmm. example, we used a lot of guided reading. And we used a lot of workshop style for other times of the day. And there was just always this strange disconnect to me between what we did in phonics and what students were doing in books. And I couldn't really make sense of it. At the time, I didn't have access to the right kind of information to figure out what was going on. And so I was pretty shocked when I got into a PhD program and went to the University of Michigan that within about a month... (laughs) I was suddenly learning terminology like phonemic awareness that I had never encountered in my master's program. I'd never encountered in any professional development. I'd never encountered in education classes in undergrad either. And I was really, really shocked. And so I was obviously thinking, well, we need to tell everybody about this. (laughs) And I was also simultaneously working on a project with the Boston Public Schools that ended Mm -hmm. up turning into a project around content-rich decodable texts. And so that kind of is where all of my interest and excitement around decoding and around foundational skills grows from. Um, And it grows from the place of knowing, wow, if we do this right and we do this well in a research-based way, we can spend so much more time doing much cooler stuff like writing and deep comprehension work and building knowledge. So that's kind of a little bit about my journey Mm -hmm. and, and how I got to where I am today. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Can I ask, where in New York did you teach? I taught in the South Bronx. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So can you start by, I know this is a bit of a controversial subject, but the book is labeled as Science of Reading in Practice. And I get so many questions from students and from parents about the term science of reading. How do you see science of reading? How, do, how, how can you explain this term? Yes, great question. And yes, first off, I guess I forgot in my introduction, maybe the most important component is that I did write a book called Reading Above Mm -hmm. the Fray that's all about reliable research-based practices and routines in our classroom that we can use for developing decoding. So that book does have a label on it. It says The Science of Reading in Practice. So for me, The Science of Reading has a lot of meanings depending on who's doing the talking. I actually don't personally use this term a ton because I think that even though some folks have a shared definition, it can be really confusing right now. Mm -hmm. And it's supposed to mean all of the science and scientific knowledge and research from many disciplines that explain the phenomenon of reading. And I really do mean all of the research, what has been disproven, what we already know, 
and all these new things that we're going to continue to learn as science continues to evolve, because that's what science does. But in many ways, the term the science of reading also refers to a movement, which is about improving the teaching of reading to match research. Mm -hmm. And this movement is utterly essential and also of crucial importance for all educators to understand and to take seriously and to know how instruction needs to change to match a more evidence-based framework, especially for early reading. But sadly, like all movements, sometimes (laughs) people use the name of this movement to label things that don't actually have any research backing, which I think is part of the confusion about what is the science of reading. So reading about the fray is labeled Mm -hmm. as the science of reading in practice because it really aims to describe the research on reading and to give teachers some practical information about how to apply scientific concepts that we have about reading and teaching reading into classroom instruction and especially in foundational literacy skills. And that you do that so well in this book. You give teachers right away and easy, like I like how, you know, five minute swap. It's nothing that it's not going to upend their teaching. It's something that will improve it in a nice way. Thank you so much. That's a great way of, I love how you describe the science of reading. Well, I appreciate that. And I think that five minutes off, like the idea that in order to be effective, we need to be taking tons and tons of time isn't what we necessarily know about teaching foundational skills. Mm -hmm. A lot of the most effective practices in research are actually really efficient and really tight and concise and teachers the ability to tell kids what they need to know and then to have kids practice it a lot. But it doesn't need to be a drawn out thing. It certainly should not be you know, a four-hour phonics block in any classroom. And you say that right up front at the beginning. And actually, I'm going to, I'll take what you're saying here and go into, I actually got some pushback you mentioned in the book, and I I agree with this, when you were talking about introducing the alphabet, Mm -hmm. how it should be done quickly, and the teacher should introduce multiple letters a week along with their sounds and the letter form. Can you talk a little bit about why that should be done so quickly? Yes. So we actually do have research that points Mm -hmm. us towards how fast we should try to teach the alphabet. There's uh, two studies that are really recent that I find very interesting. The first looked at teachers, kind of, uh, they observed them over years and they looked at students' outcomes. So they weren't impacting anything. They were just Mm -hmm. watching. And they saw that children had better outcomes if they were in a kindergarten classroom where the alphabet was all introduced before winter break. And that was true across the board for children of all entering ability levels. And actually, the impact was the highest for kids who came in with the lowest amount of knowledge. We also have another study that says almost the exact same thing that found that a cadence of at least three letters a week was more impactful for reading outcomes than a slower Mm -hmm. pace for alphabet instruction. So taken together, these two studies really point us to we need to have a quick pace for the alphabet. But really, the more kind of compelling piece of evidence, I think, for folks to think about is the logic of why, which is several fold. But I'll start with this. If you wait until the end of kindergarten to introduce the letter, say, why, then there's not a single opportunity for a kindergartner to decode any word with that letter and that letter sound combination until May then they're certainly not going to be entering first grade knowing how to read words that have that letter sound connection. 
So instead, if we think about introducing the alphabet in a speedier fashion, we can give kids access to all of the information about the basic sound spelling correspondences in the Mm -hmm. alphabet, and we can start them on a journey of practicing actually reading and actually spelling words Mm -hmm. with those letter sound correspondences, and we can build up their knowledge in that way. And we don't have to say, I'm not saying that you shouldn't make sure kids are mastering the alphabet. You absolutely should. But you can return to letters in a cycle rather than just doing a week on every single letter so that all kids in your classroom know everything that they need to know about the alphabet and continue to practice from there. And therefore, we can give them earlier access to decoding, Mm -hmm. which means more time to practice decoding, which means better decoding. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. And I love that earlier access to decoding. And it's so important for young students. It's funny, I was just in a kindergarten class and the kindergartners were saying that they wanted they wanted to be able to write like the fourth graders and they, so it's giving them access, you know, as quickly as possible and they can do that work. I love that. And they absolutely mm-hmm. can. We also know from some other research by Linnea Airy and colleagues that you can teach kids to decode words after they know probably eight to 10 alphabet mm-hmm. letters and that would need to include a vowel or two. But once kids know some letters of the alphabet, and I would start with some continuous sounds mm-hmm. like us, and they know some vowels, and they are getting a lot of phonemic awareness in a systematic and explicit way, and they've had practice in that, you can go ahead and start working on decoding. It doesn't mean that their first attempt is going to be perfect, but we can start supporting students in decoding a lot earlier than we think that we can, and they can start accessing that so that they learn how to do it from the get-go rather than needing to start at a place where they have no access to words or a place where we're asking them to guess at words. We can start from a place where we learn some about the alphabet, we learn some about phonemic awareness, and then we start learning how to decode along with Mm -hmm. the rest of our instruction. That's great. I'm going to back up just a little bit because there are so many terms connected to phonics instruction, and they can be confusing for teachers, for parents. And You do a great job addressing these different terms right away in chapter one of your book. Can you explain some of the key terms in phonics and what they mean? Uh, Like what you consider that when you said I did not, that you didn't hear certain terms in undergrad or your master's program, what are some key terms that teachers should be aware of? Yes. So the first one that comes to mind that kids Mm -hmm not kids, kids don't need to know this, but the teachers (laughs) might get confused by is the difference between phonological awareness and phonemic awareness. So phonological awareness is our attention to and our ability to manipulate all the sounds in language. And that can be as big as being able to say hot dog is different than cat dog. Shout out to people who are watching Nickelodeon (laughs) a long time ago. Or it can be as small as listening to individual sounds. And that is what we call phonemic awareness. So phonemic awareness is actually a subset of phonological awareness that's specifically about listening to that smallest sound in language, the phoneme, and Mm -hmm. also being able to manipulate. So knowing that if I change the first sound in dug to t, that I now have the word tug. So phonemic awareness is really a subset of phonological awareness. And we used to think that phonological awareness was super important and that you needed to move through understanding phonological awareness from these super, super big parts to very small parts. And that is true that we need to have awareness of the large parts of language, 
However, there's been some other research in the past 20 years, and especially more recently, that finds that children can really grapple a lot with phonemic awareness, even as young as three years old, and that we know that phonemic awareness is actually the most powerful part of phonological awareness Mm -hmm. for reading. And so it's really important that we understand what the difference is so that we make sure that we're foregrounding phonemic awareness in our instruction in elementary school to give kids access to decoding Mm -hmm. and encoding or spelling. So that would be the top vocabulary term. And then decoding and encoding would be two more to definitely know. Decoding is really using the knowledge of sound spelling relationships in order to read a word. (laughs) And that can be at at a large scale. It could be like knowing a whole chunk of a word or knowing word parts, uh, knowing morphemes, which are little parts of word that hold meaning. Or it can be, again, at that phoneme level, knowing a letter sound correspondence and reading a word. Encoding is kind of its its brother, its sister, its opposite, and that's spelling. And it's, again, using our knowledge of sound spelling relationships to represent a word in print. And so those are both also critical to know and to understand um, how they are really processes and how they're different than just saying phonics or just saying alphabet. But they're really a, a different aspect of it. No, thank you so much. Those are great. And I mean, I can keep going with the decoding because this is this is a hot term at the moment, as it should be. And you know, one thing that I'm noticing my students struggle with with their own teaching, many of them are in their early years of teaching, and they're struggling with finding multiple strategies to teach their students to decode words. So foundations is a hot program where many of the students are teaching. And that's the research-based program for students, usually in grades K through three. And it provides explicit instruction in foundational skills, such as phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, and vocabulary development. But many have, they keep coming to me and saying, you know, when I'm using foundations, it emphasizes the tap it out method. And that's all I'm seeing them trying out with the kids when teaching decoding. So I'm curious, have you found any other strategies that work well for those emerging readers when they're learning to decode? Yeah, I have a couple of suggestions. The first is that I have found in districts that I've, you know, observed and worked in, et cetera, Mm -hmm. that oftentimes foundations does not have quite enough of the phonemic Mm -hmm. awareness piece that we need. So the first step would be to know if we're addressing phonemic awareness enough. And it might not even be a whole class challenge, but you might have a group of kids who really needs more support with phonemic awareness. And that might be what's stopping them from being able to access decoding. The second thing I'll say is that one of my favorite studies about decoding is actually points us to something really important, which is around making sure that when we start teaching decoding, we start with continuous sounds. And so we start by having kids read words like sat, and we help them stretch out those words by really emphasizing the sounds and not breaking between the sounds. So sat instead of sat. And so that's one thing I would suggest is to change up what words kids are exposed to and start doing some practice with words Mm -hmm. that start and have a medial sound that are continuous. That's easy because of that. Yeah. (laughs) Then the second thing I would say is that there is a strategy that I like that I have um, seen used a lot. And I can't at this moment come up with a research study that references it. But 
it's called successive blending. And essentially in that, what we do is very similar to what I was describing. You have children say the first sound, then you have mm-hmm. children hold the first sound into the second sound. So, and then you have children hold okay. the first two sounds and slide into that last sound. Mm-hmm. And then they're able to hold that a little bit easier with their working memory, especially because they're mm-hmm. holding less information that is discrete at a time. They're kind of bundling the letters and the sounds together to get to that last sound. And so those are some things that I might try that are a little bit different than just tapping. The last thing yeah. is that I would add in some Elkonin box usage, which mm-hmm. are those boxes. You can see them all over the internet, sound boxes, word boxes, whatever you want to Google, yeah. but basically just a rectangle with different boxes in it and add some letters into that. You can grab magnet letters. Mm-hmm. Um, you can just cut out letters from a page on the internet and having children read words across the Elkonin boxes. You can move the letters around, et cetera. That is a very well-researched method mm-hmm. of supporting children in accessing those early decoding and encoding moments and is a scaffold that you can add to support. That would be probably easier to accomplish if yeah. you're reading words individually and not a book. But that is an additional support that you can add in if a child is really struggling. I like that one. That's great. Then you can take it from the phonemic awareness into decoding, which exactly. is... You know, using a similar strategy for both. Yes, definitely. You can even use the strategy all at once. You can say a word, have them uh, Mm -hmm. slide through sounds just with a little cube or something, and then have them add the letters to it next. Oh, I like that. That's great. Thank you. So what about for parents? Lots of parents are working with their kids at home on reading. What do you recommend they do when their kids are struggling to decode words? Yeah. So I think the first thing that I think this is becoming a reader is probably like just the coolest thing in the world. And one of the reasons I say this and that I think it's so important for parents to know is that reading is really not natural and our brains Mm -hmm. were not set up to do this. And it's kind of a miracle that we've arrived at a place in human history where we know how to do this and we know how to Mm -hmm. teach it and we can train other brains to do this. So when we are young, like in preschool, Research tells us that when we look at children's attention to letters and to sentences and words in a book, they're spending 2% of the time that you're reading a book to them looking at letters and words. Compare that to an adult proficient reader. We actually almost cannot stop ourselves from reading a word if we see it in front of us. It's almost a reflex. And we know 30 to 70,000 words automatically on site without much cognitive effort whatsoever. That's a miraculous transformation (laughs) in how our brain is processing the world around us. So the very first thing to think about as a parent is, how do I get my kid to pay more attention to print? Mm -hmm. So especially for preschoolers, early kindergartners, anytime you're reading aloud to your child, run your finger underneath the words in a book and help them think about, oh, this is a connection that we're making. You are not just talking about a story. You're reading words that are on a page that I should pay attention to too. You can also do things like showing your child how you would stretch out a word Mm -hmm. by slowly saying each of the sounds in a word. This is easiest if you're doing short words with three or four letters that aren't lots of vowels. So like one vowel per word, Mm -hmm. you're in no R's. (laughs) And then you're most likely to be finding a word that has regular sounds that if you just say it really, really slowly, you are probably going to be saying the correct sounds. 
If your child is really struggling, again, and you are looking for more strategies, the same strategies that a teacher could use, you could use. Um, and they're not that hard to teach yourself. So if you are having your child read and you have access to any decodable texts that are matched to what they're doing in school, or if they're at the very early stages, you could just look for books with a lot of three-letter words, then you can say things to them like, okay, we're going to read this sentence together. And yeah. then if they get to a word that they don't know, you can help them say each of the sounds and again, connect those sounds together and repeat it with them until they keep going. I have seen a lot of parents actually do a ton of successful work with this. I wish that it wasn't the case that you needed to, but you can support your child in reading and decoding at home, and you can be successful that way as well. Right, or at least to help them practice. If they're doing right, if they're trying something at school, having it continue at home. Yes, yeah, Yeah. and absolutely ask the teacher what, what they're up to in class, and hopefully you can match what they're doing at home too. Right, great, thanks. Another area that has been receiving a lot of attention are high frequency words and words that kids see, you know, very often as they're reading, like a, the, in, to, by. So how do you suggest teaching kids these words? They've been, in the past, kids have had to memorize these. How do you recommend they learn these words? So (laughs) the best way is, of course, to be teaching them along with relevant phonics Mm -hmm. instructions. So for example, You might have a lesson where you teach sometimes an E by itself at the end of the word does not say the sound that we are anticipating because we've been learning about the short E sound. It actually says long E or E. And now we can Mm -hmm. read words like B, me, he. And we've already learned consonant digraphs, so we could also read she. So one of the best ways to teach high-frequency words is to Mm -hmm. actually teach them just what are the sound-spelling relationships in this. And if you don't have the ability to do that in that kind of systematic way that I'm talking about where your whole phonics scope and sequence might need to be slightly adjusted, the other way that you need to be attentive to is to teach them the way you would teach any other word. Mm -hmm. So instead of giving them flashcards or telling children that they need to be memorized or that they're just these super weird words that are so special that you'll never understand them. (laughs) Just (laughs) teach them like any other word. So you're coming up upon the word of in a book. You need to read the word of. Wow, that one is unusual. Let's learn about what sounds are represented in this word and how unusual that we're seeing these sounds represented by these letters. But Mm -hmm. that's what goes on in the word of. Let's read it. Let's spell it together. Let's mm-hmm. sound it out again. Let's discuss again the connection between the sounds and the letters on the page. And even though that's um, you know highly unusual word for yeah. most young readers, they can figure that out, and that will help them create a long-term memory storage mm-hmm. of that word that is far more powerful than memorizing the word. And it will help them if there are situations where they're seeing similar sound spelling relationships then it will help them kind of flexibly think about how they're applying those patterns in other words, which is an Mm -hmm. added bonus that helps us become fluent readers. So if you're teaching high-frequency words, just they are words. (laughs) And actually, most of them are not nearly as unusual as we think that they are. Children just might not know the particular sound spelling relationships yet. So just teach them to them. Yeah. And that's going back to at the beginning when you were talking about systematic and explicit instruction, not Again, not just having them memorize it, but provide instruction behind them. Yes, absolutely. Don't let it be a mystery. 
that only some kids discover. Just tell them what they need to know (laughs) and practice it with them. Great. That's awesome. So one of my favorite things about your book is how you make such a strong argument for a variety of literacy practices in the elementary classroom. And you discuss two of my favorites, read alouds and shared reading. I love shared reading and I feel it's not used enough. With shared reading in particular, can you talk a little bit more about how these help students developing their decoding skills? Yes, absolutely. So Mm. shared reading is a really great practice to use for a whole range of things. But the best way I think to think about it is that you are sharing an experience (laughs) with children. So you're there in a really, really heavy-handed, supportive way, which is different than if you're, say, having them read a decodable where you really are trying to give them as much of the driver's seat, if you will, as possible in terms of really applying their knowledge. In shared reading on the which is really great, especially for Mm -hmm. younger children, we can really guide children through an experience of reading in a still a very systematic and explicit way. So shared readings when done with attention to print and attention to sounds and letters are really powerful for supporting print concepts, Mm -hmm. for supporting phonemic awareness, and yes, even for supporting sound spelling knowledge Mm -hmm. and decoding. So the protocol I like best for shared reading is kind of three steps that you can do it in one day or you can do it across multiple days. The first step, step zero, (laughs) is to get a text that is really print salient. So that means that it's exciting to look at. It's really drawing children's eyes into the text. Maybe there's like a, you know, a a page in a read aloud book that you're reading and it has um, the word bam, in red, huge letters across the top or something, that would be a great text to do a shared reading with for kindergartners or, ki- or preschoolers mm-hmm. because you're they're drawn into the print already. And as I just was talking about, we really want to draw little kids into print so that they are excited about it and yeah. that they are see the utility in it. For slightly older kids, if you're doing a shared reading for a really specific purpose, that's maybe not as critical because they're probably already looking at the text. Right, And then... So three steps. The first step is to read it (laughs) and to follow along with your finger or pointer Mm -hmm. underneath it. And then you're going to have some sort of teaching point. You might be probably reviewing something. It's probably something you've already explicitly taught at some other time, but maybe you're working on noticing capitalization. Maybe you've you've been teaching the letter T and there's a capital T and there's a lowercase T and you can draw children's attention towards Mm -hmm. that. They can notice that. They can say that sound. They can, you know, start to work on kind of reading through that sound. And then you read it again, this time inviting children to join you. Again, if you're working on, say, we're working on reading CVC words, and maybe you chose a poem where the last word in each line is a CVC word, inviting children to join you in reading those. And then again, maybe you're practicing, how would we decode this? What are, what are the strategies that we, we would use? Can we stretch through all these sounds together? And then finally, you read it one more time. You can invite children to read it with you the whole time. And again, you can return to that concept that you're focusing on throughout. It might be print concepts. It might be a phonemic awareness. It might be related to a vocabulary word even. You can use this for a range of purposes. And then like any reading, we're going to have some sort of conversation about what it meant and what it means to us. It can be small. It doesn't have to be that you're reading Romeo and Juliet and you're talking about, you know, 
a soliloquy. You can say something as small as, did you like it? Did you think it was funny? Did you learn anything new? Did you notice anything interesting? And just Mm -hmm. sparking that that instinct in kids to think about even these tiny moments where we're we're just beginning our reading journey, we're still thinking about what does it mean? Right. And we're not just doing one thing or the other. That's great. Thank you. And then with shared reading, because fluency can be a piece Mm -hmm. of shared reading. Absolutely. Yeah. So how can teachers support students with fluency through all of this? Yes. So (laughs) fluency is such an interesting topic because in so many ways, fluency is really the result of a lot of other stuff. And fluency can be you know, I think sometimes overemphasized if we think about drilling kids towards fluency when they are just learning how to read two-letter words. That might not be the best bang for your buck because those children are a long way from being a fluent reader. I think that the best ways to think about fluency and development are to think, well, we do definitely want to model fluent reading Mm -hmm. in our shared readings, in our read-alouds. We want to engage children in feeling that cadence We do want children to read at a pace that is appropriate. And once they are beyond stages where they're decoding every single sound by sound in, you know, and that, that stage might happen multiple times. Like you might hit an end of that with three letter words and then another end of that with four letter words, really practicing an appropriate cadence is important, but recognizing that speed is not all that fluency is about. And so continuing to have an eye towards uh, prosody. So are we yeah. making the right expression? Well, sounding the right expression, I suppose. Right. I mean, you can make whatever expressions you want when you read. <laughs> are we noticing the end marks? Are we, you know, speaking appropriately if it's a nonfiction informational text? So thinking about all of those things kind of holistically is um, definitely a biggest suggestion I would make. And then, okay. you know, just continuing to infuse that throughout the the K2 space. Right. Oh, great. So again, being mindful of when you're emphasizing fluency mm-hmm. rather than jump right into it too. Right. I would say if, I mean, if you're working with kindergartners, yeah, like asking yourself, what would a fluent kindergartner even look right. like if they are not just memorizing words? And, you know, reading in, in a memorized way is certainly something that kids kind of yeah. do. We've all probably seen like a three or four year olds who just do that <laughs> to, to show off. Because they're excited, but right. that that isn't necessarily the type of fluency that we want to support if we're really attending to foundational skills. Awesome. So, is there any advice you have for newer teachers about teaching these foundational skills, how to and implementing these practices in the classroom? Yeah, I would say um, protect your sanity a little bit. <laughs> it's it's a lot right now to. To be in this reading environment, it's also a lot to be a new teacher. It's like the most challenging thing in the world, in my opinion. So really trying to protect yourself a little bit and take care of yourself, doing your best to kind of train yourself to spot red herrings or red flags. Mm -hmm. There are unfortunately things out there that are circulated quite widely that are not actually Mm research-based. So I think like doing your utmost to learn everything you can about the actual research from, you know, professors (laughs) and that sort of thing. And then when you're engaged in social media, really taking a critical consumer stance. So asking yourself some questions like, does that make sense with the other things I know? 
Like, is this a moment where I need to learn more? Or is this a moment where I need to kind of question, like, what does that make sense? Does that practice that somebody is suggesting have any research behind it? If I ask them for a citation, are they able to give me one? You don't like, you know, need to fight people, but right, exactly. if somebody is says that this research says and then doesn't give a citation, that's a little bit, I mean, it might be a caption on an Instagram post, maybe they right. don't space, <laughs> but like, it's not unreasonable to wonder, well, what is the citation? Right. So thinking about kind of buffering mm. yourself from uh, inputs from all sides of all aisles and that sort of thing, because there's a lot of folks out there who have a lot of really strong opinions and that's awesome. And we need people who are bringing so much passion to this environment. But as a brand new teacher, (laughs) that can be a lot to take in. So thinking about what have you really learned? What are you noticing in your own students? Are you engaging in some new practices? And what can that help you learn about literacy? Do you find that you have found the right spaces to learn from people who really have your students' best interest at heart? And yeah, again, and then, you know, take a bubble bath <laughs> and and relax a little bit and hopefully have the space and the energy to then re-engage mm-hmm. with, with all of the amazing things that we know about reading. Great. Thank you so much for that. So we're going to end on a positive note. So this is just sharing something with a literacy focus that's going well for you. So I can go first to give you a minute to think of something. So last night I had, I teach a coaching class and for the final assignment, they had to create a professional development session and share them. Mm -hmm. And there, I was really amazed how many, I had one student focus on phonemic awareness and how he has, there are two programs that he uses in his school and he is still supplementing and creating things to support his students and they were phenomenal. And I had another student share a whole host of activities, very hands-on activities with you know, one for phonemic awareness and others for phonics. That And lots of, there was lots of conversation around these. So I was very excited that they've been able to, you know, take the programs they're using and, in, and take them so they can support their students with, with what they need. Awesome. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That one's so good. I will say, I mean, this is such a positive moment for me. I think that just everyone who wants to engage in conversations Mm -hmm. around literacy, and I know that, you know, sometimes there's, it can be sort of intimidating in the media or social media and that sort of thing. But I think in reality, everybody I've ever engaged with in this space is so thoughtful and has Mm -hmm. kids at the front of their mind and readers at the front of their mind. And I think it's just really exciting and hopeful to be part of a, a moment in time where so yeah. many people care about this. Yeah. I really take that to heart. And I think it's exciting to be able to engage with people. And I'm just very honored to, to be one of, of many folks mm-hmm. in this space trying to help teachers figure out how to do this in the best way possible. Oh, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking. And everyone should grab a copy of Reading Above the Fray. It is an excellent book. It came out at, toward the end of the summer, mm-hmm. and I actually uh, swapped it out in, in place of another book, and wow. it was a great decision. So everyone should grab a copy of that. And where can listeners find you? Yes. So I'm Julia B, as in the letter, Lindsay. <laughs> so um, Julia B. Lindsay on pretty much every platform. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. You cannot find me on TikTok, but maybe I'll be there someday. <laughs> 
And you can also find me via my website, which is again, Julia B. Lindsay, or that's a kind of a professional website. Or if you're looking for free content-rich decodable texts, you can find those on beyonddecodables.com. So you can find me at all those places. And of course, you are always welcome to email me. I am very proud to say I have, to my knowledge, responded to every DM or email I've received. Not always in a day, but normally within a couple of weeks. So I love hearing from folks. So if you have a question or something you want to tell me about one of these practices in your classroom, I would love to hear it. Great. Thank you so much. So that was great. Julia gave so many great ideas and strategies that can be implemented to support students with decoding. I do hope you will check out her book. She has so many great ideas that can be implemented into your reading instruction so easily. So I'll be back in two weeks to talk about goal setting in the new year. Until then, have a great week. And that's it for this episode of The Literacy Teacher's Life. Get in touch. I'm on Instagram at The Literacy Teacher's Life. My email address is elizabeth at theliteracyteacherslife.com. Thank you so much for listening. Please tell a friend about this podcast. And of course, you can leave me a review on any podcast platform where you listen. I so appreciate it. I'll see you next time. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.